0: We're continuing on with our series in Revelation. This week is uh, number 32. I've called this message, The Lamb's Faithful Followers. <clears throat> so we start chapter 14 this week. Have you ever heard the phrase, has somebody ever come up to you and said, listen, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which do you want first? Anybody ever ask you that question? <laughs> Which one do you usually want to hear first? Yes. Yeah, you know, for me too, I, I always say, give me the bad news. I want to get it out of the way. I want to process it emotionally and physically and spiritually. And then, I, and then hopefully end with something hopeful. That's how chapter 13 and chapter 14 of Revelation lay out. It's good news and bad news. And John gives his readers the bad news first. And we've talked about that the last few weeks. How chapter 13 revealed how Satan wages his war on this earth against the woman's offspring, which is the church and God's people, how he hates them, how he weaponizes every government, even the ones you think you can trust, every religion, every philosophy, every economic system throughout this tribulation age from his resurrection until now, until he returns, this age that we live in. And in the grand scheme of things, we know that no earthly government, no philosophy, no religion is worthy of our hope, our our obsession or our even even our primary allegiance because that's the bad news they all are controlled by the forces of darkness in this world that's why chapter 13 was bad news it reveals no matter what your political preference may be it's all 666 it's all part of the beast and I confess to you guys a few weeks ago there was a time 10 years ago where I had way too much hope and obsession with politics and politicians that agreed with my own particular ideology. <clears throat> and since then, through the messages and other things, many of you have actually reached out and confessed the same thing to me. And it appears to me that grace life is becoming a place for many recovering Republicans. <laughs> and and, and Republican, recovering Democrats, Obamaites, Trumpites. Conservatives, liberals, all kinds of recovering political addicts and obsessives. But chapter 14 is the part where John says, but here's the good news. In chapter 14, John begins the process of revealing what Jesus is doing. At the very same time, the dragon and his beasts are raging and dominating this world system. It reveals how we, his chosen, will survive this tribulation that we're in, that John said we are partners together in, how we ultimately will overcome this corrupt world, and that's what we start with today, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and whenever John says that, that means he's shifting over to a new vision. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. We've studied those before, and we'll bring it up again today. The Lamb with him, 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Does that sound familiar to something that the enemy was trying to duplicate in chapter 13 with the mark on the foreheads of the unredeemed? Isn't that interesting? going to be beautiful. You're going to love this. Father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. By the way, just a spoiler alert, that's us. The voice was like a sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Don't worry, I'll explain it later. Don't freak out. <laughs> it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. <clears throat> There's some interesting history here that I think you need to understand if you're going to properly interpret this passage. There are symbols of redemption all throughout it. So John's readers, like the church today, in most of the world, maybe not so much in America, but maybe one day in America, but for right now it's most of the rest of the world, they were facing this daily barrage of attacks from the dragon and the beast, the government and the the spirit of deception, and that's the bad news, right? And you could see how after reading Chapter 13 allowed in community together all the ominous signs at the mark and the number and what the beast is doing. You could see how John's readers would need a little bit of, well, here's the good news, right? They need to know what's going on on the other side of the battle. And guess what? They get it. At the very end of chapter 13, actually, John sets up the good news, if you remember last week, with the number 666 to remind them that the dragon's power is mortal, and will face judgment and destruction and death one day. And then, right from there, he flows right into chapter 14. So it's all in context. Right into chapter 14, he starts a beautiful revelation of incredible good news that we need to hear today. It's good news about what the lamb does on the other side of the battle with the dragon. It's full of the symbols that are describing the history of the redemption of God's chosen throughout this tribulation, including us. The first symbol I want to show you is this idea of Mount Zion. He says, I saw 144,000 on Mount Mount Zion. Psalm 14, 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores Israel. The fortunes of his people let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Clearly you see here that Zion is a future hope. Throughout the Old Testament, Mount Zion became a theological symbol of a restored Jerusalem where the enemy has been vanquished. And during this time that John's readers are reading this, you know who occupied Jerusalem, right? Remember after 70 AD, that that invasion that Jesus prophesied that would happen? and, And he says, when it happens, you need to run for the hills, don't run to the city because the city is going to fall. That's 70 AD. So clearly, John's readers also see Mount Zion as a future victory, a future time, a future place. And to help you understand how it was used, this idea of Mount Zion, it is very similar to how we use the word heaven, one day in heaven. It's going to be this, and one day in heaven, it's going to be that. One day in heaven, all tears will be wiped away, the pain is gone. That's really the same thing as Mount Zion. One day in Mount Zion, we will be with Jesus. One day in Mount Zion, we'll be unified. That's really, so just to help you understand, we say heaven today, they said Mount Zion. It's a place to long for. It's the place and time all of God's chosen are united as one tribe in the presence of the Lord, in his holy temple, with his people. It's a symbol of the return of Jesus in power and glory, in complete victory with his church in battle, which is the 144,000. Which brings us to the next symbol. I want to talk about the 144,000 virgins. This too has important historical context if you are going to interpret it correctly. Some of this is review. In week 18 of our series, which was in chapter 7, we learned how this number, the 144,000, what I call the church that is in battle. This church in battle is every believer across the span of redemptive history since the resurrection who have been on this earth at any given time. The church in battle has people that go to heaven and die, and then new ones are born that God saved. So the church in battle is always around. We are part of the church in battle at this day. I showed you later in Revelation exactly how this number, 144,000, was calculated. The idea of 12 times 12 times 1,000, just so you remember, so it's a little bit of review. The first 12 represents the gates of Jerusalem. Each one named after a tribe of Israel. That symbolized all the Old Testament that were following Jesus on the earth at any given time. The 12 foundations were named after the apostles. These are the New Testament believers that were saved on the earth at any given time. The number 1,000 in the book of Numbers, and we'll get this in a minute, was the size of an army unit. So this is 12 times 12 times 1,000 equaling 144,000. It's a symbolic number. We learned this before. This number is calculated, and it is an undeniable, this is beautiful. By the way, you ever think the book of Numbers was boring? It's because you haven't really read it along with Revelation. This is an undeniable link to the book of Numbers, and it's beautiful and critical, that book of Numbers. Numbers would always calculate the fighting forces of Israel. You know how it would do it? By tribe name. And then the number of fighting men in each tribe, divided by 1,000. So it's very clearly the same thing, right? It's very clearly directly connected to this idea of numbering an army. A holy army, a sanctified army, a chosen army, a preserved army. Now what about the fact that this, they're described as virgins? Look at this passage in 1 Samuel 21 five. This is an example of what I'm getting ready to teach you. David was running from Saul with his soldiers and he was preparing for battle and they were hungry and so he came to the priest and he said i need to eat the uh, the bread that you have in there and david answered the priest truly women have been kept from us as always when i go on an expedition or a battle the vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey how much more today will their vessels be holy <laughs> Let me explain what this means. In Hebrew literature, this is important for you to understand, Hebrew literature saw the word or the term virginity very differently than we do today. For them, it wasn't really about sex. It was about character. It's a symbol of faithfulness, strength, focus, devotion. When fighting men prepared for a military expedition or a battle, abstinence was part of their preparation. And so for John's readers, you see now two symbols of military, correct? You see the 144,000 described as virgins, people ready for battle. It is symbolic of the faithful, spiritual army of God. This clear, undeniable, Old Testament connection is airtight proof that the 144,000 described as virgins is symbolic of God's earthly army. So that's some of the history. Here's the spiritual side of this. What about God? What does he do? I've entitled this that we are the 144,000. I actually used that line in week 18 as well. So there are some things that describe us in this passage that should be really encouraging to you. I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me in my life right now, you probably need some good news. So here's the first bit of good news. We're going to make it to Mount Zion. You know like how when sometimes in shows or in a movie, you flash forward to the very end and it shows you where everybody ends up. Then it goes back to the beginning and tells you the story. That's exactly what happens in verse 1 and 2 here. John is fast forwarding. Here's the end, guys. This is what's going to happen. We're going to be in Zion, unified as one tribe together with our Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Paul wrote this. Some people think Paul wrote it. Other people, maybe someone else. But either way, it's a good verse. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering. Mount Zion isn't an earthly place. It's a theological symbol of the city of God and the kingdom of God. It's a symbol of future hope for a special, collective, exclusive community of God's people dwelling with God himself. It's a theological expression of the day that God vanquishes the dragon and the beast and all their evil from the earth and establishes his forever kingdom with us. It symbolizes the day of vindication for his church, Against the evil that has been against us as a united, victorious nation, with Jesus as our king. So we will make it to Zion. You know what else we're described here? We're described as marked. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 6:12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's the dragon and his two beasts against the spiritual forces of evil in the spiritual places. In chapter 13, those with the beast's mark on their forehead and hands, it's a symbol of them being enslaved to this world and obsessed with earthly things, obsessed with earthly answers, obsessed, obsessed with earthly solutions to the world's problems. But in chapter 14, the mark on the forehead of God's people are marked with the name of Jesus and we are liberated, we are sealed, we are redeemed, and we are transformed. These marks aren't just physical marks, like a lot of people want to communicate them. They're marks with eternal consequences, visible only in the transcendent spiritual places. These marks are drawing this spiritual battle line between the forces in battle between good and evil that are in this world right now at this moment. The dragon cannot save those he has marked. 666. But our Jesus, of all the ones that he saves, every one of us are sealed. Not one soldier symbolized by the 144,000 church in battle is lost to the dragon. We are all marked, we are all protected, and we are all spiritually preserved. Remember what? We learn in the Scripture, it is His will that none should perish, but all that who have been marked are being marked and will be marked will come to repentance and will prevail. Look, some may be martyred in this battle, but they will not be lost. They will be singing the song with us on Mount Zion along with our Jesus. See, Paul explained this when he said that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. This is what he was talking about. So we see that, right? We're going to make it to Zion and we are marked, but we also see that we we sing this secret song. He says they're singing a song that no one else even knows. This is what we do when we gather together for worship. So here's the symbolism. Ancient armies would also always try to sing before battle and even after battle these thunderous, unique battle songs to their division or to their forces before battle. Or after a victory, and it was a sign of camaraderie and unity. It was also something they would use to intimidate the enemy that was nearby. They could hear this boisterous, trump, triumphant roar, as John describes. They could hear, the wow, they're really singing loud, but we can't make out the words. They're a little too far away, but whatever they're singing about, they really believe it. This army of 144,000 is singing loudly, like thunders. What are we singing about? Our future victory over the dragon. This is what we do when we worship, is it not? And the unredeemed, the ones that are marked by the beast, they don't know the words. They don't know their meaning. They don't even know why the heck we're singing this stuff. Because they aren't marked. They aren't part of the 144,000. Nobody can learn this song from the outside. If you say you're a follower of Jesus and you're not with God's people on a regular basis, you're not really. You can't learn this song from a distance. Only those who are marked and sealed and gathered together consistently in the ranks of this army know this song and know how to sing it. It is the unifying, exclusive, healing, inspiring worship of the church in battle. Those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes are a part of it. It is also evidence the Holy Spirit has marked you when you know this song. Only those within the ranks of the 144,000 know our battle song. Here's another description. We are also faithful. So virginity symbolizes this Lord's army as unwavering, faithful soldiers with courage to refuse the beast's mark and refuse to worship the beast. Paul used this symbolism, by the way, in case you doubt me. Paul used this symbolism to warn the Corinthians about the danger of accepting false teachers and lies of the dragon. He thought they were becoming a little bit you know, vulnerable to what they were teaching. Look what he said in 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> Look what Paul says. This is tied right to, to Revelation. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will also be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Do you see that? Undeniable. Undeniable. The virginity of the 144,000 symbolizes our faithfulness, our strength, our devotion, and our integrity of the gospel that we preach. He says there is no lie found in their mouths. It is our gospel. And then the last description, we are First fruits, this is incredible. In the Old Testament, the first initial harvest of every crop, about a tenth of it, was always consecrated to God. It was used to maintain the priesthood's ministry to God's people. The second harvest was for everyone else, for humanity. They could eat it, buy it, sell it, use it, whatever they wanted with it. John says that that first harvest is a symbol of God's spiritual harvest from among humanity. Those whom he marks for redemption. This means there is a second harvest as well, correct? Out of harvest, out of, that, out of humanity, there's a second harvest yet to come, and we'll learn about that later, that that second harvest is not one you want to be in. It belongs to the dragon, those who are marked by him. All right personal section. That's a lot, right? This is our song. This is my sermon for you this week. Even while darkness, evil and darkness rages in this world, God is calling, transforming and preserving his people. So the description of this 144,000 on Mount Zion, these, these faithful followers that are unblemished is best described by our Jesus. See if you can pick up the similarities. You ready? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Right? They follow the Lamb wherever they go. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We are the 144,000, marked, protected, redeemed, Without blemish, who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And as the dragon marks the unredeemed, the, land, the Lamb of God is marking us, carrying out his plan of redemption and salvation for us, one at a time. Romans chapter 8. Oh, there we go. We're missing a slide. That's okay. I'll just stick with that one for now. I'm going to read this one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? By the way, I'm just going to say, I usually read this passage whenever I do a funeral because I can't think of anything to say most of the time. They're pretty hard things to preach at. So I always fall back on Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Well, apparently not. (laughs) Right? That's what we're learning about, how we're going to survive tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or an army. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. I'm going to read that again in case you just. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, there's the beast and the dragon, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No man, even those marked and controlled by the dragon and his beast, can separate us from the love of our Jesus. The faithful 144,000 is all of us who have voices like thunder. We sing about all the Lamb has done, is doing, and will do to preserve and redeem his army. We sing of how he laid down his life, defeated death, sent the comforter to mark us and to transform us and lead us into battle. Look, our role in this battle for some of us is going to lead to poverty or nakedness, persecution, and danger, and for some of our brothers and sisters, even death. But here's the good news. No matter what weapons the dragon forms against us, they will not prosper, they will all fail. No matter what hardship we suffer in this life, some of you are going through so much. No matter what hardship your burden is carrying, we all arrive at Mount Zion, singing this thunderous song of the redeemed, No matter what the dragon and his two beasts will put in our path, we will remain pure. We will remain faithful. We will remain devoted followers of the lamb. You know, I got to tell you, as a follower of the lamb, some of you may not think you have it in you. Well, I'd like to think I would follow the lamb wherever he goes, but I'm not sure I've got it. Let me tell you something, you do. Because this song is not about us. It's not about you. It's about the work of the lamb in you. Because our lamb didn't just die to pay for your sins. He also marks you to be holy, righteous, and blameless and faithful. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table in Zion before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. So I'm closing today by tying this familiar song Psalm 23, with the first part of chapter 14. I think it's just an absolutely beautiful connection. So all throughout Scripture, the shadow of death has always been a symbol of tribulation. Did you know that? Always. Even in this valley of darkness, our great shepherd is with us. Even as we walk through the tribulation, In this world full of shadows, the Lamb is with us, His rod and His staff, they comfort us. And while we fight, we are singing our battle song that is weaved together from the themes of redemption from both the Old Testament and the New. And because the unredeemed hope in something else, it's a song full of words they just don't understand. To them, it's gibberish. I even said that wrong. Gibberish, whatever. (laughs) See, that's how much gibberish it is. But this song is not gibberish to us, is it, dear brothers and sisters? To us, it's words. The words in our song are precious, inspiring, they're hopeful, they're healing and they're uniting. So as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will follow our Jesus together. We will be singing together. Even in the shadow of death, we anticipate and celebrate and sing of the day that we will all be gathered together on Mount Zion with the Lamb. You know, for some of you, Perhaps today the Spirit of God is marking you. Perhaps some of you the first time ever the Spirit of God is calling you to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Perhaps He's calling you to be transformed. To be redeemed. To sing a new song with us. That this world We'll just never understand. Jesus, we recognize that there's a lot of things in this life that are hard. But we are so thankful that in spite of that, You have called us. You are protecting us. Amen.